Hi, I'm Bernard Fraser, and you're listening to The Essence of Cool. Today on the show, we talk to Paul Myers. Paul is, among other things, a singer-songwriter whose band The Gravelberries had a hit with the pop banger Wonder Where You Are Tonight. He's an accomplished music journalist and author, Currently working on his fifth book about the life of comedian John Candy, Paul has written three music-oriented books, including A Wizard, A True Star, Todd Rundgren in the Studio. He recently released Kids in the Hall, One Dumb Guy, a detailed account of the rise of the legendary comedy troupe. Paul also hosts the much-lauded Record Store Day podcast that has featured interviews with the psychedelic furs Richard Butler, music icon Elvis Costello, and Paul's younger brother, celebrated comedian and filmmaker Mike Myers. Do yourself a favor and check out that episode. It's hilarious. Today, Paul makes his case for why folk singer Judy Sill, the great Elvis Costello, and the legendary Stevie Wonder are the essence of cool. Let's get started. Paul Myers, welcome to The Essence of Cool. Hey, it's good to be here. Thanks for having me, Bernard. We're going to talk about three really interesting artists, one who I had absolutely no knowledge of uh, before you actually sent me the list. Um, But before we get started on the artists, I just wanted to talk a little bit about Paul Myers, the 13 or 14-year-old living in Scarborough that we in Etobicoke used to call Scarberia, and I'm sorry. I did too. Um, what were you listening to? Were you were you getting sort of hand-me-downs from your, your older brother, or are you seeking music out on your own? Or And what music were you listening to? Well, first to, to mention Scarborough, I, uh, I was one of those guys, uh, I was born in North York uh, on the border of East York, and then my parents moved us to Scarborough, uh, just before I started high school, like so, I went to uh, elementary school uh, on on a place called the Peanut on Don Mills Road, uh, like, uh, and I went to Woodbine Junior High in North York, and then we moved to Scarborough. And what I always tell people is they had yellow fire engines, and there is no ye- fire engine yellow crayon in in uh, in a Crayola set, so I, I knew something was up. And then, and you know, it's like there also was these hydro fields, as we used to call them. You know, the where the like the hydro Ontario or whatever used to go through. And uh, I just found it really dull, and lots of car dealerships and fast food places. And so uh, I couldn't wait, like so many of my friends, and many of whom are still active in the music scene in Toronto and other places. Uh, we couldn't wait to move downtown because uh, at the age of twelve, as you say, uh, that would have been. Uh, I am sixty years old, so that. Uh, in 1972, I was, you know, still kind of getting over the Beatles breaking up. And uh, I had been getting Beatle albums for uh, my birthday and Christmas. My birthday's in November. So November 11th, I would get a Beatle album. And then uh, December 25th, I'd get another Beatle album, you know. And, and I was at the age where I was just about six years behind them. So I was catching up. Like, my 11th birthday, I got Revolver, you know. So, uh yeah, I mean, and those records, you know, those records were uh, gold to me, you know, and uh, uh, and that was a huge part of me. So at that point, and I've just been talking about this recently, I, I was like actively into All Things Must Pass. And it was about a year before I went to England uh, with my parents and I think Band on the Run had just come out, uh, I think, 73, if I'm not mistaken. Uh, so, right. um, so um so the, that's definitely my universe was Beatle Records. Now, it's been said in other things because my brother's a famous person. Uh, my parents being from Liverpool, they were, uh, the Beatles were considered family. 
So we we didn't just take the breakup of the Beatles like anyone else. Like it was this is stuff from my parents' hometown. And so I followed everywhere. I got Ringo's solo albums. I got John Lennon's Imagine. And and uh, I was hugely, you know, hugely enthralled with those things. And so it was and then of course I was also listening to Top 40 Radio from 1050 Chum AM, which was a hits <laughs> In those days, was a contemporary hits channel. So, and the playlists of the Chum charts. If you ever look at one, they have these charts. They're incredibly eclectic by 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 uh, today's standards. You would have Aretha Franklin on the same chart as Crosby, Stills and Nash, and also the Edwin Hawkins singer singing "Oh Happy Day," a gospel song. So, so I really feel that that was a huge thing. Is that we we didn't know black music from white music per se, and we didn't know anything, really, you know, and it was great because music just came in, you know, so I, I thought that was cool. I was talking to the, talking about that very subject the other day, and in fact, in direct relation to 1050 Chum, because that was my source of music, you, you and I are of the same generation, so uh, probably listen to uh, the same songs at virtually the same time. Yeah. And, uh, but isn't it interesting that these days, I mean, radio has changed dramatically, clearly, but that we don't get that kind of variety anymore. You know, there isn't one source that gives us, you know, R&B and rock and country and folk. No, it's true. It's true. And uh, uh, I mean, the only thing, I guess, there was gatekeeping, obviously, because we didn't hear the Velvet Underground on 1050 Chum. Uh, yeah, but, true. but, you know, and that's that's what made it interesting when I became uh, my own person years later. And thanks to Alternative Radio and then just being not on radio, just like checking sources, I, I would discover that, you know, Big Star had records out in the 70s that I didn't hear about until probably the late 80s, you know. And, uh, like, you know, they the the joke is, I, I not the joke, but the common experience I've had with a lot of my friends my age is that we all discovered Big Star around 1990, you know, right. <laughs> or 89 <laughs> at least, you know. And then, of course, we always had cool friends who knew way, you know. I, I Actually, there was a guy in Toronto when I was 17 or 18, and you probably know who I mean, uh, who this is, Tony Malone. And he was in the right. group, the Drastic Measures, who were a really cool pop band, but they were kind of, uh, you know, they were a pop band by the definition of 70s British music. And Tony Malone, personally, when we got to know him, me and my friends and my brothers, he would just, like, throw us Captain Beefheart records and Harry Nilsson records and Sparks. Cool. And and I, I, I've told him this to, to his face, actually, that, you know, a great deal of my finishing school of, you know, like I started in those AM radio days and then my, my finishing school for sort of knowing what the 70s were really about was coming from stuff that Tony Malone had personally, you know, he had a way of like uh, sort of pontificating about these things. You know, he would say like, right. oh, no, you don't want to hear that. You want to hear this one. This is Van Dyke Parks, <laughs> you know, and he would tell me about Van Dyke Parks and Smile and and the Beach Boys, and and like I, you know, I was still a kid thinking the Beach Boys were fun, 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 and helped me, Rhonda, which they are. But they, but, right. but I had no idea what Smile was or Pet Sounds, you know. I yeah. and I didn't really understand like why you could be hip and still like the Beach Boys. So that was right. cool, and, and I I get it now, you know. But anyway, what is your definition of cool? My definition of cool, I mean, it's weird because I recognize how uncool I am saying it, uh, but <laughs> my definition of cool, like what's cool, uh, like, to be honest, I mean, it's a vague answer, but the, the coolest thing you can be is not worried about whether you're cool, right? I mean, that's right. that's the answer. But But in terms of what I always think a cool person is, a cool person is somebody who just seems to know 
uh, uh, to know like that's the real thing, that's the fake thing, and and a cool person's right. uh, uh, maybe in my this is me putting my virtues on it, but a cool person would be someone who knows to say um, I really like "Call Me Maybe" by Carly Rae Jep- Jepsen, even though I know you would think it's uncool or somebody would, and you c- yeah. you can prove why it's cool, and that makes you really cool, right? Because you go, I'm not liking this ironically. I really think that's a good song. I really think it's a good record, you know, and yeah. And so, so there's that thing where the cool person doesn't worry about whether they're conforming to the orthodoxy of critical cool or uh, hipster cool, you know, and that's the whole thing. Hipster versus cool, right? Hipster got a bad word because, but bad name, I think because it meant slavishly cool without any sense of center, you know, am I overthinking this? Maybe. Yeah. Typically, uh, artists that we feel are cool are uncompromising. They don't give a shit what the critics or fans think, which sort of speaks to what you're just saying. They push the boundaries and they're always doing sort of the unexpected. Does that ring true for you? Yeah. I mean, it's weird. It's like I, there's things where you're, uh, there's an artist that it's cool to like, and then there's an artist who is cool, right? So, you know, my friend Craig Northey of the group The Odds wrote a song called Someone Who's Cool. And he has some great lines about the superficiality of perceived cool. And he will say, like, I'm the song about the song that once said something new, or I'm, I'm a sheep in this wolf's clothing. Uh, yeah. I'm a picture that I'm holding of someone who is cool. And, and yeah. like, uh, you know, uh, Craig is endlessly quotable, but uh, but he he ob- obviously he probably would never concede that it's wrestling with the idea of cool in that song. He probably would say I'm amusingly commenting on it, but I, I think we all go through that period of thinking, you know, what is our relevance? How do I fit in? Am I am I a hundred percent myself? And then you start to fall into the prey of uh, you fall prey to the idea that other people can tell you whether you're cool or not, and that's externalized, which is of course you have no power at that point because you've given your power to someone else to judge you. So again, am I overthinking? Probably. I don't know, because I think back to my teenage years and, you know, we, we were all sort of suffering from that sort of, uh, the pressures of, of your, your, your peers. And I remember people saying, you know, I'll listen to anything, but I won't listen to country. And I said the same thing, but you know what? Yesterday I'm talking to Blair and Blair, one of uh, Blair's first picks was Dolly Parton. And in not four or five episodes ago, I said, you know, just in terms of comparison of people who are cool or not, you know, I said, Dolly Parton isn't cool, but she's incredibly talented. Uh, but, you know, I did my research and did uh, watched a lot of interviews with Dolly and changed my mind. She is cool. She's super cool. Uh, she's and, bef- and I said that before I'm sucking up to her to get the, the vaccine. I honestly, <laughs> I honestly think Dolly, Dolly Parton and Johnny Cash were windows for me. Okay. So there's Johnny oh, Cash. Yeah. When you're a kid, I mean, I grew up in a time when there was a, an ATM named after Johnny Cash. So it was like, you know, I, I don't know. I don't know when I knew. I liked a boy named Sue on the charts when I was a kid. And I sort of knew I Walked the Line was a heavy right. song. But they were like, you know, he, I, I didn't know the good Nashville from the bad Nashville, right? And I didn't realize until years later that Johnny was an outcast in Nashville for his uh, a few things. Uh, he wrote about the first Native American um, killed in Vietnam, the, you know, Ira Hayes. And he, he stood up to the Nashville establishment famously many times. And he, right. he, had a, he had a TV show where he brought on like Bob Dylan and Joni Mitchell and, 
and he he was kind of like him and June Carter were like the John and Yoko of Nashville. I mean, they right. You know, in fact, I actually thought that once when I saw a video, a film of them. It's in one of the documentaries where they're they're in this bus and they go back to his boyhood home and they're kind of touring and they're like showing up at like cool activists places. And I thought, yeah, they're they're doing be- their version of a bed in for peace, but it's down in rural, you know. Um, United States. So I, I, I think that right. that's when I discovered Johnny Cash was cool. And then Dolly, I recognized um, certainly when, when a man of my age discovers that uh, empowered women are way cooler than we thought they were. Like the fact that Dolly had really carved out her own niche and managed to use the tools of sexism in her favor, like she was right. in control of it and also managed to sort of like become one of the more powerful songwriters and copyright owners. And, and then she's also never shied away from speaking her mind in that, you know, the unassuming Southern lilt of hers, you'd never know it, but you know, you're getting owned every time you talk to her, if you talk, you know, she, she, she will take you down and she's the coolest. (laughs) And just, and it's so clear that she's the coolest and you can see younger uh, I'm 60, so I start to say things like younger people. But the young, <laughs> younger people today, uh, young women especially, I've noticed. And again, I'm a man, so I don't. This is all ex- what I see. There seems to be this this uh, a beautiful discovery of these younger, these older women who did kick ass and c- really cleared forests to get these roads built that uh, that a lot of you know the younger women uh, thankfully are taking on. Considering your definition of cool, how hard was it to choose these three? Um, well, partly it was hard because um, I sometimes deliberately counter-program. Uh, to, to, I try to take the word obscure out of the word cool. So sometimes I, I go for, you know, I go for something that's kind of obvious. Like I think one of my choices that I didn't feel like doing because you told me someone else did it was Neil Young. And yeah. of course, everyone has an opinion about Neil Young, but I have, I have a strong feeling about Neil Young, and so I would I would have picked him. Uh, even though it, it's, it's not like picking, you know, um, uh, Ianis Zanakis, the, uh, avant-garde composer, you know, um, which, or, or even Steve Reich or, uh, Philip Glass or some serial composer like, or Terry Riley, like those things that I listen to, but I don't know if I wanted to like pick them as the thing that I would talk about, but some people might pick a, a really obscure or some, you know, street performer that they know because they know that nobody else would know. And that's kind of an advocacy that I admire. But at the same time, I, I just went with some pretty obvious ones and one that was new to me that I I think a hipster might not have. Uh, uh, well, I don't know if we should get right to it. But uh, yeah, I, you know, like one of my picks was somebody who I only discovered later and a lot of cool people already knew about. So that's that's cool. Well, speaking speaking of Judy Sill, uh, who I yes. think you're uh, yes. alluding to, I knew nothing of Judy Sill uh, until you'd mentioned her name. I had never heard of her. So tell me, and then you said you, you came across her later in life. How did you come across her, and what was it that you heard? So here's so the, the story of Judy Sill, and if you're Googling this at home, it's J-U-D-E-E, like uh, Jadi, like Judy Sill. So I came across her music um, because I'm a huge XTC fan. And Andy Partridge is a very good, much like that friend Tony Malone that I used to have, uh, who used to tell me all about the stuff. Andy Partridge is somebody who, if you let him talk about what he likes, he'll tell you all these uh, lesser known musicians that are equally worthy of your time. And he would mention Judy Sill in the same breath as, you know, uh, Joni Mitchell or um, 
you know, uh, uh, Laura Nero. Like it was like, right. like, and that was kind of posi- that was turned out to be a really good positioning. Uh, and then I didn't know why I hadn't heard about her. And then you know, much like you know, Big Star or uh, uh, so it was there's a couple other like, well, Chris Bell's solo album from Big Star. You know, like there's things you hear about later, and you go, why didn't I hear about this at the time? And then you hear the story right. about the politics. Or Nick Drake was another one. There, Nick Drake's a great uh, investig, a great. Um, touchstone for talking about judy sill same kind of story uh had the world by the by the collar and everyone said you're a great talented singer songwriter judy sill she goes and signs to geffen uh david geffen at the time was you know he was the guy stoking the star maker machinery in Joni mitchell's song you know so david geffen could have made or broke your career but she had a lot of um issues uh some uh, mental health issues self-medication issues and actual drug addictions and criminal activity and all these things. So she she was not tameable. And yet her music is mannered and stately and her singing, she has got this voice that, and I say this as a compliment, she does this thing in the studio on Heart Food, the album Heart Food, where she's kind of doubling at times the vocal, which creates this resonant pop sound, which right. reminds me in a flattering way, and I say this again as a compliment, of Carly Simon. Like she could have been as big as Carly Simon right. was in the 70s. Uh, and then, you know, and I didn't know why. And then it was Heart Food that got me in because Andy Partridge talked about this one song specifically from Heart Food called The Kiss. And it's just, right. it's one of those songs like it's, oh, you know what else it reminds me of is it, when you hear Brian Wilson's, uh, you know, post Pet Sounds or Pet Sounds era stuff where there's a sadness, but it's pop and it's beautiful and it's over the top, but it's, it's, it's just, um, it's almost like you're hearing the wreckage of their childhood or whatever wounding coming out in this beautiful thing. They're fashioning this music. And so when I heard Judy Sill with this great voice, and I, I still don't, I still haven't read enough about her. And, uh, but I, you know, I, I must throw on Heart Food from 1970, uh, 71, I think. No, well, actually, well, I'm someone out there yelling at me now. Uh, <laughs> Heart Food was, um, that's the second 73, album. Right? Yeah, 73. Her first album is self-titled. It came out in 71. Uh, and then Heart Food came out in 73. And then, you know, then her career kind of goes downhill and she's got other albums, but um, she, you know, sort of the same way uh, Todd Rungren's group, The Naz, they never quite, they recorded some of the third album. But So Ju- Judy had some of the third album out and then they put it out a few years, many years later. Uh, it's kind of a hodgepodge of things, including some live tracks and it was called Dreams Come True. And then every so often, Rhino will re-release uh, versions of these records. And some, there's some live sessions with Restoring Bob Harris. And uh, she's great. She's great. And, and I want to come back to, uh, in a minute, I want to come back to that third album and uh, the tragedy that took place in the middle of that. But um, first, I, I just wanted to say, you know, I, I, one of the songs that really hit me, I think also off Heart Food, is The Donor. Um, yeah. And her, the, the layering of those vocals are so incredibly beautiful and so ethereal. And it kind of reminds me of, I guess, a Gregorian chant in a way, um, but really, really beautiful. Yet there, there are songs where she has, I guess, is, is it a Texas twang or what? Yeah. But it's kind of off-putting. Yeah. It, well, you mean it's off-putting in the sense that it's like, uh, seems to not fit, right? 
Right, like, right. Incongruous, kind of, yeah. This music seems to want to have a British accent. It seems to want to be, <laughs> uh, it, like, that kind of piano ballad that Kate Bush was doing, for instance, but without the wafy right. Kate Bush voice, but the same sort of right. stature of, you know, or Joni's... Uh, I feel like the uh, analogy to Joni Mitchell's Blue is pretty apt, except that she's got... Judy has much more of a country or Americana influence that you know, puts her in the Beach Boys or Brian Wilson's yes. solo camp, you know, and, and that twang in her voice, you know, puts her in, uh, you know, like, like I said, Carly Simon, or, or even like, and I say this again as a compliment, Jennifer Warren's like one of those big throated or Linda Ronstadt, right. Linda Ronstadt even, you know, and, uh, right. and yet you would never know like what trouble she was in, in her head, you know? Yeah. She's got some major heavyweights behind her, you know, uh, Geffen, of course, uh, um, David Crosby, Graham Nash, yet she doesn't seem to really catch on with the public. Um, no, I mean, that's, and that's partly, I think, because of people skills. I actually feel like one of the, you know, one of the things, for instance, that held Nick Drake back was that he was, um, he, Nick Drake, for instance, was a, um, uh, I was going to say a whiner, but that's not that's not, not fair. But he, you know, uh, he could be he could be moody. He could be moody, and and I think maybe right. you know I I don't know I I don't want to speak to Judy Sills. Actual, I never had an interaction with her, and I haven't really read any accounts of that. But I know that she was frustration comes up in all the stories. Like she was frustrated over this, frustrated over that, and um, I, I think that there's I know that she really burned out. She burned out David Geffen, which of course you know, it's a bad thing to do. And who knows if yeah. David Geffen, I don't know. I don't want to speak to David Geffen, but it's a small community out there. If David Geffen gets a call saying, what should we sign Judy? What's she like? And he goes, well, I don't know. She threw something at me. You know, the next thing you know, you know, yeah. people will be like, and especially for women, maybe, I don't know, maybe a man could get away with a certain kind of behavior back in 71. Um, you know, maybe if a woman stood up for herself, she gets called whatever, you know, and uh, and and at the same, I mean, she called David Geffen uh, 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 an anti-gay slur, and she actually oh, called yeah. him fat too, which I think she she, <laughs> called, she called him a fat fag, is what I'm saying. Oh, and and, uh, and that's apparently she did that on stage uh, and referred to his faggoty pink shoes. So um, again, uh, for one thing, I don't even know if Geffen was out at the time, so I don't even know how just how intrusive and horrible that was. Besides it actually being absolutely designed to hurt but take down an entire you know, other community with it so um yeah. and again i don't even know if she was really homophobic or just knew that that would you know get at him you know and again right, and right. so once again though who wants to work with someone like that right you know at the end of the right. day um henry louis worked on um on her records too which is interesting because he right. he's a producer engineer who i only discovered um I interviewed England Dan and John Ford Coley. I, England, I interviewed uh, um, John Ford Coley, and uh, oh, cool! And one of the things that um, one of the things that came up in that interview was that they had recorded with in the same studio where Joni was recording Blue, <laughs> and she was talking about uh, uh -huh. he he knew Henry Louis, and I was like, oh my god! And then I start seeing Henry Louis show up on all these records. So there's a guy who. There's a guy who you'll see his name show up on all the great records that, you know, talk about cool. If you're looking for a guide to cool, check and see if Henry Louis was involved because he's, you know, right. he's one of those guys who shows up just like, you know, like he's got a touch, you know, he's got ears. Yeah. 
It seemed like Judy kind of jumped into the music biz with um, a, a bit of a bad record already. I mean, she'd been charged with armed robbery, and I guess there was a lot of violence at home. And uh, yeah, so there must have been some significant issues. And as you alluded to earlier, uh, you know, she has a significant problem with drugs. You know anything about that period? In the, I guess it's in the middle of, of uh, recording the third album at Mike Nesmith's uh, studio, right? Yeah, she ends up working at at at, at Mike Nesmith studio, and, and you know I should point out that you know even in even in some of the biographies I read, they describe her she was bisexual, so she was she she was probably um, probably in many relationships at, at the same time, but she did marry a man who was described as a Tunisian actor, mime, and Charlie Chaplin impersonator, uh, and she married him in she married him in Las Vegas. So I don't know if uh, you know. Right. And she also dated J.D. Souther, of course. If, you, if you've seen the Linda Ronstadt documentary, right. uh, uh, J.D. Yes. Souther was a, a, what we, we used to call a ladies' man. We might have another word for it now. Yes. He's, and a great songwriter. <laughs> He's the one who famously said right. to Linda Ronstadt, you know, I want you to take me home and make me breakfast. You know, so. Um, um, but anyway, uh, and he wrote a song about her. Um, and, and now I am looking this up now. Oh, so, uh, the song was called Something in the Dark. It was all, all about her. You know, she'd had back pain. She had like, uh, so she, a lot of people, this is what we're learning like in Tom Petty and, and Prince. A lot of times painkillers were the, mm. the, the secret um, extra thing that causes them to be in a weakened condition, whether they actually OD or just have heart problems, you know. And she was, mm. she'd had a, she'd had a, a, a car accident, I think. And then she even had surgery and I don't think it helped. So then, you know, she was kind of fighting pain for the last bit, and she died like right. of a drug overdose. And um, now I am googling that also. Oh, um, uh, was called acute cocaine and codeine intoxication. So there you go. She was probably taking her wow. meds for the back pain, and then thinking, "I feel so depressed. I'm going to take a bump." And you know, you don't want to be messing right. around with that stuff. Um, yeah, so I guess there was there was some talk about uh, a lyric or um, a, a piece of prose that was found by the bedside that kind of alluded uh, alluded to um, you know shuffling off this mortal coil. Yeah, it's it's still unclear, according to people that I've talked to, that um, much like again Nick Drake, there's an an element of death by misadventure uh, by a person who was already writing already writing sort of melancholy prose. So she may have been thinking, uh, she, okay, so if it wasn't suicide, for instance, the thought is that she was ruminating on how horrible she felt all the time and thought about, I wonder if I'll have a better time in the next life. So this was the nature of the, the lyrics were about transcendence. And, 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 then, and, and then the other hand, she may have been writing a suicide note. I mean, and again, being an artist, you don't know because... Right. You know, maybe she wrote a poetic suicide note that could also be a lyric. Uh, maybe she wrote a lyric that was so good she thought it was a suicide note and just said to herself, well, I better go out on this one. I mean, I don't know. You know, uh, Brian Epstein died the same way, taking – he was depressed or took pills and, and bourbon or something. And, you know, and the story I heard about Nick Drake was that he, you know, he trashed Joe Boyd's office or something and was in a funk because he wasn't getting the recognition that other Island Records artists were having. And so he just takes an extra hit of his uh, anxiety meds and – or whatever. I've, I'm not sure exactly what they were prescribed for. But it was a prescription medication he just took too much of, according to Nick Drake's sister, you know. So right. I don't know if Judy – Mis misappropriated the amount of 
you know, codeine and cocaine that she could survive. Um, there was an awful lot of that, you know, a lot of people, I mean, up to this day, Tom Petty, you know, just, you know, probably took too much of his pain meds. And, and I say this with all due respect, because I know people that know and love him. I, you know, we don't know because that's the problem with our bodies is sometimes they just give out, you know? Yeah. Yeah. I, I certainly don't want to dwell on that aspect of it because, uh, she did, uh, create some glorious music. How would you say she fits your definition of the essence of cool? Uh, she, the essence of cool is that she managed to, to um, accidental overdose or otherwise, transcend uh, an absolutely bleak uh, set of cards and used an instrument and challenge, channeled her, her, um, the actual um, higher power given talent that, that she she managed for a brief shining moment to channel all of that energy into making things of beauty and, and lasting permanence. And, and that she, she's cool. Like she herself is cool for doing that. And it's cool to think about people like her because, uh, just because it's so great when someone leaves you that it's like, it's like they knocked on your door and ran away, but then you go to the door and here's a Judy Sill album all tied up in a bow for you. You don't have to know what it took them to get yeah. to your door or where they went after, but there's this album that's at your doorstep. And I mean, that's a, you know, but it's the first time I've used that analogy, by the way, and so I'm pretty excited by it because I actually what think, beautiful way. That's ex <laughs> but that's exactly it, right? They knock on your door. Yeah. You don't know who they are. Yeah. You open the door and they're gone. And then, so especially when you discover someone posthumously, it's super cool because that, that knowledge of that music has been waiting for you, you know, or you've been waiting for it. I don't know. It's yeah. anyway. So that's, that's why we, I think yeah. do revere people like, again, I keep dra dragging Nick Drake into this and big star, even like you go, well, wait a minute, this was all happening and I didn't even know, you know? So that's, yeah. that, and that makes it super cool because you also feel like once you're let in, once you're let in on the, on the secret, um, yeah. you feel pretty cool that you're, um, that you're blessed enough to get it, you know? So true. On that note, I want to take a break. And when we come back, we're going to talk about uh, somebody uh, who I know is near and dear to your heart and uh, an artist that I have has always impressed me, and that's Elvis Costello. We'll be right back. Thanks for tuning in to The Essence of Cool. As an independent podcast, we rely wholly and completely on support of listeners like you. If you like what you hear, please help keep us on the air and throw a few bucks in our electronic tip jar. You can find it on the front page of our website, theessenceofcool.com. We truly appreciate your help. Now let's get back to the show. All right. We're back with Paul Myers. Um, we talked about Judy Sill. And I want to talk a little bit about uh, your next artist, Elvis Costello. Oh, yeah. Uh, what was your intro to Elvis? I mean, I, I heard, I remember hearing Allison and listening to uh, CFNY. Uh, how did you come across Elvis? Uh, yeah, I remember very vividly because I was, I come from playing sort of, you know, I was a Beatle fan as a kid and then I, and I was into sort of like rock bands like BTO and Rush and stuff and, mm -hmm. and what we might call heavy metal, uh, old Zeppelin, I guess, but not so much Sabbath. And then, uh, then one year 
uh, all of a sudden, like my brother Peter was into Zeppelin too, but then uh, Zeppelin as well, I mean, and, and Zeppelin too. And I bought physical graffiti. And I, I remember that something started happening where these artists were coming out. And my brother was bringing home the Ramones. Uh, Peter, Peter was very influential. Right. I've spoken about this in other places, but hmm. he, he was very influential and he had his own room. So he had his own stereo. So he would go into his room, slam the door, and all of a sudden you hear Gabba Gabba Hey or, you know, Lobotomy. And then one day you heard Talking Heads scream, you know, I, 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 Psycho Killer. And I'm like, wow, what are you listening to? And then he had My Aim is True. And I looked at the cover and I'm that guy in the suburbs who was like looking to be cool. And I see this okay. picture of the knock kneed guy who looks like Buddy Holly. And I'm like, what the hell's that, Peter? Right. You know, and like, little did I know, right? Like, right. and then we started listening to it. And I remember thinking that um, Sneaky Feelings or something sounded like Van Morrison. I thought, is this the future? Or is this like some old guy? Yeah. Like, what's the deal? And then, but then I started really digging the energy. Uh, I started digging, you know, and then by the time of this year's model, which came out in America or Canada, we say America, you know, yeah. <laughs> when it came out on the North American shores pretty soon after, I thought, you know, uh, I think it was the, this year's model was the one where I went, okay, this is because it was in fact the first attractions album, right? right. Uh, My name is true was, uh, you know, Clover a band from Marin County who happened to be working illegally in London. So, right. <laughs> so and Huey Lewis's band. Um, yeah. um, so, but, but it was my, uh, this year's model was the first time you know, pump it up and, and like, you just went, Oh, okay. Now I understand this is the energy. This is the fury. And he just, by that point I had a little more, you know, I understood the punk rock part of it as well, but also again with the misdirection, cause it wasn't, it wasn't old music and it wasn't punk, but it was angry R and B. Right. Um, Right. I, I probably wasn't paying as much attention to the um, potentially misogynistic lyrics of some of the songs. Mm. Although I've come, to, I've come to now cringe when I hear you want her broken with her mouth wide open. You know? Yeah, yeah. Uh, and, and, you know, just the, there's a lot of stupid girls in those Elvis Costello songs at the beginning. And like, it's like it, sort of at some point you got to wonder, like, small women but just to it something feels uncool about standing in a crowd yelling along with a, a song about stupid girls you know yeah. uh but that's just me as a six-year-old man today so right. I don't know. <laughs> but, uh at the time i wasn't paying attention to that i think i was just really interested in how how they were kind of like rebels without a cause you know yeah yeah so. but um in, in not too long after he does start to di diversify and really starts to show a range in his um, songwriting abilities and the types of sounds he's using we have artists and i think back to to bowie because he's my number one guy and how often he yeah. changed yet we as the list the hardcore listeners just we didn't balk we followed every whim right and just sucked it up was it the same for you for elvis yeah um well yeah up until a certain point and i'll get to that in a minute but there there was um it's definitely a, definitely a run where uh when he went to like armed forces and then uh uh trust and and then then when he went like super poppy on um on uh, punch the clock I was all there. I was there because it was like, you want to hear your Elvis Costello do something big and widescreen. It's like, we've got, we've got the scrappy R&B live stuff and now let's move into this. And he was getting increasingly more into things like shot with his own gun on, on uh, I think, a trust. And, and I saw him on the, on the uh, Tom Snyder's Tomorrow Show, which was a show that used to be on like 1.30 in the morning. Yeah. And, and he did shot with his own gun and it was like, um, that's kind of an amazingly not punk rock song. And, yeah. And uh, I was, and he, then I started to read interviews with him where I, he would talk about Cole Porter and he would talk about George Jones and he did the almost blue, uh, 
yeah, almost blew the album. And, and he comes by that honestly, I guess, because his parents were both uh, musically inclined. His dad was a, tr- a trumpet player and singer, uh, a singer, band singer, a band singer. Oh, okay. Um, and he I may guess have played trumpet too. I don't know. Yeah. Right. And there was a lot of jazz in the house, uh, I guess, as he's growing up. So, you know, it's not surprising that he, uh, he has those leanings. But there was also top 40 in the house because he talks a lot in, in the book about his, his father would bring home um, the equivalent of advanced copies, you know, demos and acetates, because mm. the band singers would always get these, they needed to do cover versions. So they would, the publishers would send them the copies of the record so that they would know, you know, this is the new single by uh, Marvin Gaye, so you guys should learn it. And, and you know, so he would get Beatle records, he would get um, English pop records that didn't make it over here, and, he, and you know, uh, Shirley Bassey records. And he, right. so he was starting to get immersed in music that wasn't, you know, uh, uh, the Beatles, uh, non-Beatles music as well as, and he himself started developing tastes for Americana, his idealized version of Buffalo Springfield and, and Crosby, Stills and Nash. And, um, and as we were, uh, I think we were talking earlier about Elvis Costello uh, was talking, he was a huge Iggy Pop fan. And he was, right. he was also into Bowie and you, he talks about these things and you, these people don't exist in a vacuum. So a, a really big thing for me was discovering that there was no year zero right. in music. And that I always told the example that Mick Jones was a Poople fan, Mick Jones of the Clash, and 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 you think and Johnny Lydon, I think, was into Vandergraaff Generator, you know, and and so we, these people didn't go. I'm only punk, and there's been no music before me. Right. Existed, you know? <laughs> so so you know, he was Elvis Costello was like loving Van Morrison. He was loving all this American music. He he was getting to know Emmy Lou Harris's music. He was getting to know Graham Parsons, and so when he approaches making new records, he's always saying, "I want to do a song like." a piano ballad from uh, a torch song, or I want to do, uh, you know, Tonight the Bottle Down by George Jones. And he, he, he and I think in that way, he is the spinging songbook, right? Elvis Costello right. is the guy who, he's, I, I sort of touched on this when I interviewed him for my own podcast, because he, I sort of said, like, you're a guy who understands large discographies and varied careers, and now he's at that stage, and his right. new album has a, an eclectic mix of things, his new album, uh, uh, Hey Clockface. Right. He, he um, never stayed in one place because he's never, he's always listening to everything. Right. And he's an omnivore, you know? Yeah. So I, I, I think that, that, so I did follow him for a long period of time to answer your question way yeah. back there. <laughs> um, the, and then I, I, I think the only album I, the only album I kind of walked away from was when, uh, when Kojak Variety came out, I remember thinking I wasn't as psyched about it. Uh, and also um, North, as good as it is, the piano album. Yeah. I don't find myself going back to it a lot. Right. Uh, um, but, you know, there's been other albums that that I didn't think I would go back to a lot that I, I you know, like uh, uh, Goodbye Cruel World. At the time, I felt like it was just Punch the Clock Part 2. Mm. And in many ways it was. But but now the songs and I realize, oh, OK, so he did the setting of Punch the Clock again, like the same Slicks or Clive Langer, Alan Stanley production. But, you know, uh, I Want to Be Loved is on that record, which is a great song. You know, right, right, right. Um, so you mentioned you had him on your on Record Store Day uh, podcast, and I wonder as but it, it wasn't the first time you've met him. You met you met him before, correct? 
Yeah, um, the first time I met him was my brother Mike was on Saturday Night Live, and he said, you'll never guess who the musical guest is next week. For some reason in those days, I didn't know until Mike told me. <laughs> uh, and I was in Toronto, so I took uh, People's Express, I think it was, or yeah. one of the cheap airlines that left from Toronto Airport, yeah. and I landed in Newark, and I walked very quickly. It was like I flew on Saturday afternoon, got to the, in time for the rehearsal, uh, uh, Elvis was doing, um, it was the uh, Spike album at the time. So he was doing Let Him Dangle and uh, Veronica, I think. Right. And uh, with G. Smith band behind him. And, oh, uh, that's right. Of course. Yeah, yeah. yeah. So that's the first time I met him. So, uh, I, but I met him in the hallway. Well, I don't know if he would remember this, but he was wearing dark glasses in the hallway, the dressing room area. Yeah. And Mike saying, I'll, I'll take you to Elvis Costello. We'll introduce you. And we walked into the hall and we literally bumped into him. Oh. Like, uh, and it was like, I stepped back, said, oh, hi, Elvis Costello. And he said, oh, hi, you know, hi, I'm on my way somewhere else. You know, and, uh, and, uh, so then we did later at the party, I, I had brought along a cassette of Spike and he signed it for me. So, oh, is that ever cool? Now, was that his first appearance on SNL after the infamous radio, radio broadcast? I think it might've been, you know, yeah. I, 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 I'm pretty sure it was. Yeah. Because he had, yeah, and I'd watched that when it was live. I right, know. me too, yeah, yeah. But because yeah. Lauren banned him for, what, 10 years or something? or Yeah, some crazy thing like that. Yeah. yeah, I mean, I think in many ways, I wonder how much of that was like wrestling. You know, right. like uh, how much the controversy wasn't real. Right, right. I don't know. Yeah. Now, did you meet him? Uh, now, he performed with Burt Bacharach um, on your on your brother's Mike. second Austin Powers yeah. film. Um, and did, did you meet him then? Did you go down to the yeah, filming well, of that? that? That was, so that was another one where he said, we're shooting in Las Vegas with Elvis Costello and Burt Bacharach. And I, by that time, they had done, I think they'd only done one song. Right. Uh, they only released God Give Me Strength for the Allison Anders film. Right. And, uh, and, and so I, I, was, uh, I remember standing by a tour bus uh, no, actually, that was when I met Bert Solo. Sorry, I just realized. So uh, <laughs> I, I was standing by a tour bus, and, and Bert Bacharach was dressed as Bert Bacharach right. um, with a you know a, a tuxedo. Right. And I, I said, I said, I'm a huge fan of Elvis Costello, and I'm a huge fan of Bert Bacharach. And I, I said, I always imagined what would Elvis Costello Street and Bert Bacharach Avenue sound like? What, that in, <laughs> what would that intersection sound like? And damn it, if God give me strength, does not sound like that intersection. Yeah. And of course, Bert Bacharach, you said something like. That's really, yeah, that's really great, man. Thank you. Thank you. Appreciate that. Appreciate that. <laughs> but uh, I met Elvis again. Uh, uh, yeah, I realized Elvis wasn't there that day because that was the first Austin Powers. So yeah. So, but I met him again somewhere on another Elvis because on another uh, Austin Powers thing. Yeah. So it must have been the second one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The, but I mean, at yeah. that point, at that point, you know, I'm, I'm with my brother, and it's like I always feel like you know, it's a crapshoot if he's going to remember me. You know, but yeah. then I met him 18 more times after that. Oh, cool. Yeah. I must tell you, one of the best meeting Els Costello stories, though, was my wife worked for Vicky Gabro's Vancouver-based talk show. Yep. And Vicky is really good friends with Elvis and Diana Krall. Oh, okay. And so Vicky and her then-husband, or her late husband, um, they he loved my wife, Lisa, and knew that I was a big fan. So, and it was Chalky Davies, the photographer, and Carol Starr, his uh, photography partner and partner. And they, we, um, we, uh, and, uh, and, uh, oh, uh, Steve Macklin, the music manager. So it was like a four parties, four couples. And we're at a dinner table. We're playing a party game where you write the celebrity names, uh, on your forehead and have to, and then you, yep. you have to guess who you have on your forehead. Right. And I, and, uh, uh, Elvis had, Elvis had put Pete back on his head. And I, I said, um, 
least lucky drummer in the Beatles. And he goes, Pete Best. And I, and I said, yeah, I guess that wasn't, that wasn't a hard one, you know? And then uh, I, had, I had quit drinking and I think he had a Diet Coke that night. And I, I was talking about how I have to, now I have to quit Diet Coke and we were laughing. And, but that was a real evening where we could really talk. And, uh, you know, that point where you, you think, do I just take him to the corner and we just talk about music? Because I'd love to do that. But, you know, we didn't. In fact, yeah. having him on the podcast was the first time I had a protracted, 30 minutes to just talk about his music. I mean, I could have probably asked him to talk about anyone's music and he would have done it. Uh, but yeah, so over the years, and he signed, he signed uh, when he had his autobiography, we, we met in, in San Francisco and uh, you know, I've been on the guest list a few times and it's been awesome. And, and as it turns out, two of my best friends who are guitar techs have ended up working for Elvis Costello, three oh. actually. Oh, wow. Colin Nairn from, uh, from Vancouver was his road manager. So I got to see a few shows through him. Uh, Tim Mech, who many people in Toronto know, he was the guitar tech for a few years and he got me in to see some Elvis Costello shows. And then Bob Chemis, who's a great songwriter, but also a guitar tech for Elvis Costello. So it's like, wow. I've been lucky enough that I, I mean, these are friends of mine who I felt comfortable enough to say, you know, if you got a free ticket, I, I mean, yeah. <laughs> so, and the thing is I would have paid, I would have paid, right? I would have paid and I, I have paid, I've had paid many times. I've, yeah. I've spent a lot of money on Elvis Costello products over the years, but, uh, but it's nice, to, it's nice when your friends end up working for the guy. You know? Yeah. So you have him on your show, and I guess because you've met several times, and not as much nervous energy going into that, that discussion, but were you still, I don't know, a little, little concerned? Because he's, I mean, he was lovely on your show, and I've seen other interviews where he's been quite lovely, but I think he's known for being somewhat curmudgeonly at times, too. And you, um, were you worried about which Elvis you might get? Or? A little bit. I was worried that he'd be distracted. I was worried that he would be like uh, cramming me into a press junket day and mm. maybe he had like something more important. Come, you know, I think he did the Rick Rubin one or something the same day or something. Right. And I, I, if I was preparing for the Rick Rubin one and Paul Myers came on, I would probably be like, can we get this <laughs> over with? You know. Yeah. Um, but, um, but he wasn't. And uh, he was very nice. Uh, he, uh, he only called me Mike one. <laughs> but you I'm must have edited that out because I didn't um, hear that. Which, is, which happens. It happens. Yeah. I mean, there's two reasons that happens. Obviously, he knows me through Mike, and right. obviously, I. But I've made an impression as myself. But he also knows that you know, I'm Mike's brother. But then also, when they can see you, and I kind of sometimes maybe make the same expressions as Mike, right. especially with the glasses. I look like Austin Powers sometimes, right. to my chagrin. I mean, I don't try to do this. Right. I, I didn't get expensive <laughs> surgery to look like this. But, um, <laughs> So then he, he said, oh, yeah, my, my Paul. And, I, and, I, and luckily, I got a nice clean – I don't want to embarrass either of us, me more. Uh, but, uh, but, yeah, no, it was great because he was in a great place. And then I, I threw him a few, like, pushy comments. Like, like, you know, I said, so do you think this was a little, like, pump it up? And he was like, he was like oh, great. And I think that's what happens when people, when people know that you are uh, good, in good faith. You know, I was in good faith and you could tell. And also when you have just a little bit of, like, you're not trying to show off that you know stuff, but when right. you show them that you understand yeah. a little bit of what they're doing and, you know, and you're not going to talk to them like a goofy person, you're not going to ask them about the, about the SNL show again. You know, you're not going to ask them about, you know, I did ask him about Radio Radio because he has two songs on the new album that talk about the power of beauty of radio. And I was like, is it somewhat ironic that you're revisiting yeah. Radio Radio, you know? Yeah. So that was cool. What was the most surprising thing you learned during that interview? Um, well, it, it wasn't, it wasn't, uh, so, so what I learned during the interview is that Elvis Costello 2020 is very thoughtful. Like he's really calmed down a lot and his art 
several times. And I remember, like, I don't hear that expression very much. It's probably, knowing Elvis, it's something he probably read in a, in a Dickensian novel, and it's become part of his language. But what a great phrase, to be of good heart, especially during this um, horrible year, uh, when we not only need to stay calm and hopeful, but we need to just be, uh, be kind, you know? Yeah. And for Elvis Costello to be the arbiter of telling people to be kind after all the different Elvis Costellos we've seen. Right. So to me, that was new information that, you know, the dad of twins, Elvis Costello, is, you know, married to Diana Krall, living in Vancouver most of the year, especially this year. Um, yeah. And just to sort of have him be this guy who is like the voice of calm, loving reason, yeah. uh, it was great. And I guess the other thing I learned was that, um, that he almost did a record with Nick Lowe again. <laughs> Oh. And that, you know, yeah, yeah. And he, it, it, so just like, just the idea that he was up till the lockdown trying to do a bunch of different international recordings. This new album of his, he was in Helsinki, he was in Paris, uh, and, you know, and, and that they flew in tracks from New York. And, and just the idea that he, you know, at his age, I don't mean his age like an old thing, but in his, the length of his career, mm. he's as strong and hardworking and vital and creative and curious as he's ever been. And now he's got a lot of skills and connections to be able to really accomplish things in at this age in his life. So that, to me, that was a really nice uh, check-in. Yeah. You know? Yeah. And on that note, you know, I, uh, as I admitted earlier, um, I can be a kind of a, f- a f- flighty fan. Uh, I'll listen to a couple of albums and I skip over, you know, a decade or two. Uh, and in Elvis's case, there was, you know, 20 years. It wasn't, uh, I mean, I'd heard many of the songs uh, over the years, but the the last album I bought was Armed Forces. Um, but then I heard your uh, I heard your podcast, and I went and I listened. I haven't bought it yet, but I'm going to. I listened through Hey Clockface, and I was just delighted. There's such a range. It's it's so diverse, and it's. I mean, there are influences there. I can't even imagine where they come from. Did he give you any clue to you know what was what he was listening to or what was influencing him for the making of that album? Uh, you know, I mean, he, 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 he did say that a lot of it had to do with child's play, that he was in Helsinki, he was pretty much left to his own devices. Mm-hmm. And he, uh, uh, so he would like, he would like, hum a drum part into his mouth and like mouth drumming. And then, you know, the engineer would say, why don't we lay down a track of you doing that actual. <laughs> and so, so that became the thing. And and then once that is okay, then it's okay to just do the bass and just do the whatever ham-fisted piano you can do, because he's not a great piano player. He's, he's a, he can play it, but he's not a great piano player, right. the way Steve Naive would be. Yeah. And I think that um, that he did, lay, he did let me into that, that it was just a sense that he didn't know if he was making a record at that point. He was just, he was just basically having a little bit of recording playtime to sort of hammer out some ideas. And as the track started to take shape, he thought, what is this? And then he probably still intended to do an album with the attraction or the, the imposters, and that was the thing where they were talking about doing something with Nick Lowe, but then scheduling changes and everything like that. So then he goes to France. And I think what influenced them there was the choice of weaponry. Like, you know, they didn't have, right. they didn't have the attractions. They just had Steve and a bunch of French musicians. And so they could use a horn for the bass or they could use the left hand of the piano for the bass. And then the drums were more about the percussion of the instruments. And, and I think that those were the influences. In terms of the songs, I think he was... I think, you know, lyrically, I don't know where musically he's coming from. I don't know. I don't know if at this point he consciously 
other than Hey Clockface, which I think was a conscious tribute to Fats Waller. Right. Um, I think he, I think at this point now he's uh, chewed up all the influences to the point where he's, he's just saying, I want to try this sound. And it doesn't really say I'm doing an R&B song. You know, mm-hmm. I heard Burt Bacharach influences throughout some of the songs that I, there's a song Byline, which is very, um, it felt like a Burt Bacharach song to me. And there's mm-hmm. another one too. Uh, I, I do, I think. No, I do remind me of Almost Blue. So, so I feel like he's also got his own influences of his own music. Like I think, right. he, I think he's created a lexicon. Right. And I, did com- I compared it to his face. I compared it to David Bowie, although it was unfortunate because I referred to David Bowie's like, last two albums and we all kind of paused there for a minute. Yes, I heard that. It was an awkward pause, I got to say. I, I felt, especially because Elvis has just recently uh, uh, had his own bout with cancer that he's appearing to be very helpfully out of the woods. Um, but um, but just, you know, as you know, Bowie, you're a Bowie fan. So I've always been amazed at the, the way that Bowie could on the next day, the album the next day, take an influence from his own Berlin stuff. Yeah. <laughs> and, and at the same time, filter it through his uh, Trevor, uh, uh, his Nine Inch Nails period, you know. Right. And, and um, Trent Reznor is what I was trying to say. Right. Uh, but, uh, but, you know, and, and at the same time, he's also, you know, referring to his Jacques Brel influences. And like, and, and Bowie, up to the very end, you know, I mean, he had elements of low on, on Black Star. Like there was yeah. some of the wailing from, you know, from side two of low. Yeah. Uh, but, but at the same time filtered through, like he was listening to jazz at that point, And he had yeah. like, so he had that jazz band playing with him. And, and so the fact that a, an artist like Bowie was raging against the dying of the light, yeah. it bodes well that Elvis is now turning out to be one of those, I think. Yeah. And looks like Paul McCartney is too, to some degree. I heard his new album, uh, McCartney three, I heard in advance of that. I won't say how I got it. Uh, but, uh, <laughs> but it was pretty amazing to hear it. Pretty amazing to hear a, a man of, Elvis, of of McCartney stature also having done a million things, still goofing around with like a, a certain sound on a on a on an yeah. instrument that he you know just playing for himself because it's yeah. a self made album. So anyway, I, dug- I just wanted to jump into one little thing about Elvis before we we leave a discussion about him. And uh, I have to admit, uh, like being sort of a flighty fan, I'm also not one who immediately listens to lyrics. Um, but I was thinking through Elvis and uh, his his lyrical content, I think not listening to his lyrics, sort of you lose at least half of the value of uh, of Elvis. And uh, I want to punctuate that by reading something. And I just, uh, uh, I was thinking about one of these songs. Um, it's This Is Hell. And uh, it's... Uh, it goes, the bruiser spun a hula hoop while all the barmen preen and pout. The neon eye of the nightclub flickers on and off and finally blew out. The irritating jingle of the belly dancing phony Turkish girls. The eerie glare of ultraviolet perfect dental work. This is hell, I'm sorry to tell you. It never gets better or worse, but you'll get used to it after a spell. For heaven is hell in reverse. My God. Yeah. No, I mean, there's, there's definitely... Uh... Like, and that's what he does. It's like, he's got rhymes on rhymes. He's, he's tucks in things. It's like, he's made a beautiful, like, remember I was talking about the idea of leaving something on your doorstep. Right. Like, so he, he puts an envelope together and he'll stuff the envelope with different layers. It's like, it's like a gift bag. Yeah. And, and then it's inside a box and that box is inside a beautiful package that has a bow around it. And even the stationery is perfect. And, yeah. and, uh, or it's perfectly ragged if that's what he wants. Like he'll send it to you in fish and chip paper if he, if he has <laughs> But but it's always appropriate. Like right. I'd say, always is too much of a generalization. But uh, mostly he mostly his success rate is really good in terms of 
Sometimes I feel like maybe he's still guilty of over cramming uh, information. And sometimes his one-off lines just feel like one-off lines. I mean, he even did this on the new album. He has a line, I've got a face for radio, which yeah. is, <laughs> which again, though, given the nature of the song, it's kind of about radio. Right. Um, that's like the way, you know, we stand up comics, they'll tell a joke and then they'll come up with another joke as a, a buttonhole to the next joke. Right. And then they have a chunk and that chunk is part of their set. Yeah. So what they do is they sometimes will go, I told a, told a joke about my mother-in-law. And then I thought, like, she's talking about food. And I was like, okay, I should do that food junk, my food joke here, put that in. And they make sure that they're always reattacking the subject matter from different angles so that when they give you that complete thought, it, they've uh, basically put it through the x-ray and found all the different ways to talk about that thing. Right. And that's what Elvis Costello does. So in that way, he's no different than a joke writer, you know, right. and sometimes right. there are actual jokes in there. So. Right. Right. Um, I just want to uh, sort of wrap up the discussion about Elvis and just to get back to our theme. So how does Elvis define the essence of cool? Or how does Elvis define cool? Uh, so Elvis is, Elvis is his own guy. Elvis is his own guy. There's only one Elvis Costello and Elvis Costello is always being Elvis Costello. And he, whether he's suffered, uh, whether he's felt like he wanted more people to like him at any given time, I've never noticed. So I always feel like you come to Elvis, he doesn't walk to you. Uh, and that is sort of cool. And I think that he's cool because constantly excited about the thing he loved from day one and he's constantly finding new ways to wrap his head around it his heart around it and then the part that is also cool is that in that process he's quick to tell you all his influences so he becomes an educator he becomes right. somebody who tells you he tells you not only is this a song that was based on a fats waller song and here's why you should like it but he might even tell you an obscure fats waller song that you that you haven't heard or tell you why that is cool and tell you to go back and listen to that and so when he gets excited about something when he gets excited about Iggy Pop and the Berlin years, then you're saying to yourself, oh, so this is cool. He, he sees that it's not just about him. It's the love of the game. And, like, yeah. and, and so he is, he's excited. And that passion, I mean, I once had a therapist tell me that, that if you don't have the passion, you, you, you know, you, you, two things happen. If you don't have the passion, you probably won't have any success. Secondly, if you have success without passion, it's unsustainable and, and empty and you'll still feel like shit. Right. So you have to have, Success with the passion and passion with the success. So yeah. it's it's crazy, but I guess that's that's what makes Elvis Costello cool. Right. On that note, we're going to take a break, and we'll be back with Paul Myers. We want to hear from you. Let us know what you liked and even what you didn't like. Have you got a show or guest idea? Well, drop us a line. Our email addy is info at theessenceofcool.com. We look forward to hearing from you. Now let's get back to the show. We're back with Paul Myers, and uh, we're about to talk about uh, Stevie Wonder. And uh, Stevie Wonder is one of those guys that, for me anyways, always seems to have been around. I mean, he was always on the radio. I mean, you know, we talk about 1050 Chum, and, uh, you know, I, I remember listening to Uptight. I mean, Uptight was in serious rotation on 1050 Chum, as I recall. Um, was that your first, was that your introduction to him, or how did you get to, to know Stevie's work? First time I heard him and really knew who he was was my Sharia Moore. Um, do you know that? Yeah. And yeah, I so, feel like, yeah. yeah, I feel like it was around that time. 
Um, I didn't know fingertips when I was a kid. I didn't know little Stevie Wonder. Uh, like it, it was only my Shamira more. And then, um, and then like he had a spate of, you know, superstition and higher Signed ground. Signed delivered and once in my life. Yeah, Signed Seal delivered was those were and those were big radio songs for me. Like yeah, that, yeah. and like I've used him as an example of the eclectic playlists of Chum AM because they, uh, you know, uh, I mean, in hindsight, some of the blackest music I ever heard at that age in, in my limited exposure. Um, like I didn't hear Curtis Mayfield until years later, but I heard Living for the City. You know, and I heard right. Higher Ground, and I heard Superstition. So, yeah. so what was cool about him, much like Sly and the Family Stone, yeah, is that you know, Sly and the Family Stone is the same. Like where no one said, "Now some black music for you." They just said, "Here's Stevie Wonder, Stevie <laughs> right. Wonder with his new hit." But it was definitely very black, right. to the point where I, you know, I I could, you know, I could also understand why "Got to Get You Into My Life" by the Beatles could have had something to do with like listening to like that kind of music, you know? So, right. so I, I think I internalized it more than consciously, you know? What was the, sort of the initial impact on you when you heard him? Well, I guess I danced in my, you know, my own clumsy way. Right. Uh, and, but also the melodies, it was from the minute you, and you feel the backbeat, like, uh, you know, uh, you don't know what funk is when you're a kid. You don't know, you don't know the expression funk. You don't know anything, but you know that you're going down, 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 back, down, down, and you're like, oh my god, like whatever that is, it's so infectious and real. And then him on top going like, very superstitious, yeah. and you're like, whoa, oh, you know, like it's like like he's singing in a way that I wasn't hearing other people sing. Yeah. You know, I heard rock and roll singers like maybe I heard Terry Kath sing in the twenty five or six to four, like you know. You know, like, but even but with Stevie was like it was just so melodic as well as grounded, and I didn't know half the stuff he was actually singing about. I wouldn't have known what "Living for the City" was, you know. Right. But um, I knew it was important. It yeah. felt important to me. Now earlier on, when he was little Stevie Wonder, um, I mean, he wasn't really singing. He was just kind of the harmonica player for a while. Eh? Yeah. Yeah, and he was. I guess he was, you know, making vocalizations, but you know, it was yeah when he started writing the, the writing the songs and sort of, sort of, leading, you know, leading with his like like the Masheri and I was, you know uh, for once in my life, you know, like the, those were the early ones and they feel very much of a different era than the stuff we now think of with Stevie Wonder. For me, is the '70s Stevie when he started taking control of his records right. and really, you know, did a lot of self recording and brought in the the uh, Tonto's exploding headband synthesizer guys to, to create original patches. Uh, like so many instruments you would think were a bass or a, a violin or a flute were actually Stevie uh, with these patches that were set up these French guys. So, right, right. You know, so it was, it was cool. It was, it was just a really cool. Anyway. Yeah. So yeah, he, his evolution into being a singer was from the humble beginnings of being the guy who did fingertips for sure. Uh, but when did he really sort of come into his own as a songwriter and what transpired to make that happen? I, I know that there was a, definitely a period where he started to sort of fight for control uh, as so many of the Motown artists did. I mean, his story is like similar to Marvin Gaye's that way. He seems to really radically change in the 70s where, you know, there was in the 60s, there was this great emphasis on writing the pop songs. Um, but in the early 70s, he wants to, you know, go, I guess, go along with the trend and start writing album-oriented material. Yeah, and social consciousness. I mean, that's... right. You know, he was speaking about, he wasn't just, when he spoke of higher ground, he was talking about black empowerment, but he's also talking about spiritual enlightenment. And, 
there's for instance a song on talking book and he and he says uh it's big brother and he says you you know you're watching me uh your your name is big brother you say tired of me protesting children dying every day my name is nobody but i can't wait to see your face inside my door you say you got me in your notebook writing it down i'll change you say i'll change if you vote for me as the president of your soul i live in the ghetto you come to visit me around election time uh, you know and and wow. and that is from the 70s you know and yeah. and i feel like i'm reading that today you know when um when uh you know even barack obama says you know um we shouldn't say defund the police people we need to catch your slogan and then you'll see a reaction from the black lives matter people is don't mince words you know we're, it, they got it backwards here we're not trying to appeal to the politicians they should be trying to do they should be listening to us right and the black community uh, as we are all learning as white people i think i mean i i don't know i can only speak from my white experience i didn't know half of i knew it was bad but i didn't realize how much we thought the liberal white folks had come around and we realized no you know it was a lot of it was performative and all that stuff those issues were being talked about in the 70s. Yeah. And so the black community that Stevie was speaking to beyond kids like me who hear it on Chum, they, and I wouldn't have heard that song because it wasn't a single. Like, there's a lot of wisdom and knowledge. And, and that's where Stevie, as the grown-up, you know, that's where little, the little Stevie's gone and it's Stevie Wonder, uh, self, you know, self-controlling, sure. self-destiny. You know, talking book, inner visions, fulfilling this first finale. And this is before Songs in the Key of Life, which is, is, is his sort of... Right. His Sergeant Pepper, Abbey Road, or whatever. I don't even know. What but he, do, he, he does have hits on the radio that are speaking to the black experience, you know, things like Living for the City, you know. Yeah. And, and I wonder how important it was for him to be broaching these topics in that time. I would imagine very important. I mean, I would imagine, um, if I keep imagine, trying to imagine if I was a. If I was a black American in the 60s, 70s, and I, and I could turn on the radio and hear him sing about that thing I talked about or some other thing mm -hmm. that is specific to black people, uh, uh, struggles. And, and that's also on the top 40. And you wonder how much, you know, how much one like Paul Myers in, in, you know, in a suburb in Toronto is going to relate to it. But we're getting some of it. We, we felt the unease. We felt the, uh, we felt the, this, uh, the disaffectation or the, even the uh, disenfranchisement. And I think that, that that speaks to something we've been talking about with all these things is the power of the sort of subliminal power of art to sort of, and that's what makes Stevie cool too, is that he managed to make it, you know, three chords in the truth and maybe in his case, a fourth chord here and there. <laughs> or fifth and or sixth. It, yeah, yeah, exactly. <laughs> and that's the other thing too, is like you look at him and you think he's throwing in, um, like bits of Ray Charles, bits of uh, jazz influences, and he's drumming on a lot of these records. Yeah, and, and his harmonica playing—if he was just a harmonica player—I mean—and that's the other thing too. You hear Stevie Wonder on anyone else's record, and you know it's Stevie Wonder. Like he yeah. shows up on uh, uh, the Annie the Eurythmics song uh, "Angel," I think it is, right? Yeah. And and it's the minute he plays his solo, it's like it's a Stevie Wonder record. Yeah, you know, and they knew that. That's why they brought him in because—and that's something. Isn't that amazing when an artist has a voice on the instrument? And so he would be cool if he was just a harmonica player. <laughs> like, you know but I, mean? but it, I think his, his sort of signature transcended the, uh, just the harmonica. It was when a Stevie song came on, you, you knew it was Stevie, right? Even before he sang, there was just, he had a way about uh, presenting uh, music that was 
specifically him, right? Yeah. Well, yeah. I mean, um, like a song like Boogie on Reggae Woman, uh, besides the fact that I don't think the word reggae was that widely mm. used in mainstream communication, uh, but that the sort of like funky bass and it's, it's funny, it's not really a reggae song. <laughs> like it has, it has a reggae influence in the, right. <laughs> but it's, it's more Scott. But but then there's this uh, boogie sort of bass line like that's the boogie on part. But right. but it's, and that's also modern synth sound at the time, very contemporary for its time. Like you know, right. like, yeah. And it, meanwhile, it's just and you know he's just like vamping away with these little little noodlings on the electric piano while he's saying things like "Can I play?" You know, and and, and of course you know he can. So that's yeah. the. the so, yes, Stevie, you can play. It sort of reminds me when, when James Brown goes, can I count it off? And you're like, James, you're the, you're the leader of the band. You can count it off if you want. Can I count it off? I mean, is my name above the title? Did I get this wrong? You're like, that'd be a funny James Brown tape. Uh, well, whose signature's on the checks? Is it, does it say James Brown? I think I can count it off. He's writing this incredible music. Early to mid-70s, he couldn't be a bigger star. And he's still in his early 20s. Apparently, um, he is about to quit. He's about to uh, retire, as it were, at what, the grand old age of 23. Um, and he decides not to, and he comes back with his masterpiece songs in the key of life and so many people saying it they considered it to be the best album ever recorded ever recorded did he did he say he was going to retire mainly to get out of another deal maybe because it oh, feels maybe because sometimes that happens i know it happens my friend sloan were the band sloan like not to compare them to cv wonder but my, <laughs> my my friends in the band sloan they they had lost their geffen deal and i think they they went through a period where they told everyone they were breaking up and then they just came out with another record on their own label. Um, I mean, I don't know what that story was, but I digress. Uh, it sounds like to me, if Stevie had all those songs saved up or pent up like to make this great double album, I will agree though that it is, if not, it's hard for me to say anything's the greatest anything. I always find myself saying, but what about, right. so I would say, but if I had a short list of even 10, song, 10 albums, I might say that that is like, a monumental album. I think we were talking in another conversation about things before and after. Like you can't, once you hear songs in the key of life, it's like, that's a kind of album that, uh, that becomes a thing. Like that is a significant, uh, if someone else makes an album that has uh, almost every song amazingly done and a diverse collection of melodies and rhythms and, and just so packed with energy, you know, even the white album by the Beatles doesn't have that much, hit and miss ratio like uh this is one of the great arguments of all time is would the white album have been better as a single album of incredible songs and right. i you know i like it i i don't think i would want any less of the white album but the songs in the key of life is just like not wall to wall it's just like and packed with information so break it down for me what are the elements that go into songs in the key of life that make it such a you know benchmark or well I mean, you got to start with the idea that, you know, he's got it like, like sort of like the Steely Dan level of players on it, you know, and right. he's got like the horns and, uh, uh, you know, it's just, he's, you know, and also the timing too. Like in 76, there was, there was a lot of records made in 76, but there was something about this one that just was so like, it was, it didn't sound like anything else that year, you know? And also mm. this is just the year before punk broke, you know what I mean? The singles were right. coming out throughout 97, 77. But um, 
I, I don't know. I would say that it's, you know, the, I'm actually, I was thinking of looking up the personnel because like there's so many players on this record, uh, whereas maybe he had done a lot of stuff by himself up to then. So maybe that's part of what did it. You know, you've got Minnie Ripperton, of course. Right, yeah, yeah. Well, interesting that he did uh, seek out other players because he was used to doing virtually everything himself, right? Uh, I yeah. wonder why that, what was he looking for in other players that other than, well, I mean, because he, he's a, um, would you call him a virtuoso on all of these different instruments? Uh, I, I certainly think he's a very iconic drummer. Uh, he might not be, he might not be Bernard Purdy, but he's, um, you know, I wouldn't kick Stevie off the drum. Right. <laughs> crackers you know but uh these are canadian expression uh but uh but um but yeah i mean certainly his area of expertise is keyboards and harmonica and uh backing vocals uh he he is a master arranger of backing vocals whether he's layering his own or bringing in um you know different people like uh like uh uh the aforementioned or sarita wright and and you know minnie ripperton and mm-hmm. and and like knowing and shirley brewer sang on those this record and and, you know, he had, like, guys like Michael Sambello on guitar and Greg Fillin. I also have a hard time pronouncing the name, Greg Fillin, Jane's Fillin Gaines. And, I don't know, it just, um, it strikes me that it wasn't just that he could have done it himself. He wanted those particular people to play, you know? Right, right. Yeah, he seems like a guy who's got... Going into an album, he's got a grand. He has a master plan, and he has he has painted it out in his mind, and he knows exactly what he wants and how he wants it done. And uh, as opposed to you know many of us who go in and we kind of wing it and uh, we go with the the vibe of the time, right? I wonder how much of it was cut floor too, because that would also determine whether or not he wanted to. Uh, um, like he could have overdubbed a bunch of parts, but he wanted to see, go for a feel and have an ensemble at least cutting the main track. You know, mm-hmm. uh, like I know for instance, I'm somewhat of a scholar on Todd Rundgren and Todd Rundgren's another artist who really could, yeah <laughs> so it, in my book uh, uh Wizard of True Star Todd Rundgren in the studio I talk about how he could do an album all himself but in uh, in the 80s he had this idea to do a series of recordings where he had like Michael Urbano Lyle Workman and and Larry Tagg and different people Brent Bourgeois and they would come in and they would play in the room together and uh, like the way an old Motown session might have been cut or a Phil Spector session. And his idea was, I could play it all myself, but let's go for this big ensemble in the studio. And then if I have to do some overdubs, I'll do that. But let's try and get as much of it off the first take. And then everyone's in separate cubicles with sound baffling. And and there's a, definitely a there's an argument to be made for that approach, you know? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. But maybe that's, uh, again, I don't, I wish I'd, like I said, it's amazing. I almost have an anti-research <laughs> about this particular music. Right. I, I, and it's kind of a blessing for me because I'm, you know, you can pick apart the Beatles and know every Mark Lewison book uh, and you can know every third overdub and all those things about the Beatles or you can just enjoy it. And sometimes right. maybe I like to just enjoy it. You know. Yeah. Um, he was on um, Larry King two years ago, I guess. And, uh, you know, Larry was saying, gosh, you know, you've collaborated with this person and that person. And it really is quite an impressive list of people that he's, uh, he's collaborated with. Luciano Pavarotti, Dionne Warwick, Paul, uh, of course, uh, Snoop Dogg. Um, and he said, so w- w- 
why and what is it? And uh, he said something about um, he just wants to work with anybody who, number one, wants to work with him, and number two, shows a, a true passion for music. And he, so there's this real adventurous spirit. And this is, uh, I don't even know how old he is now. He's, is he in his 70s at this point? Or no, I guess he's still in his 60s. No, but he's younger because I know that he, he since he started out as a kid, he. Uh, oh, true. Yeah, you know, let's look up his actual age. Um, he's, he's you were right. He's exactly seventy. There you go. So born in 1950, and his birthday's May 13th. And um, <laughs> yeah, yeah. So, this, week, said, this Wikipedia moment was brought to you by. Yeah, exactly. And there's a there's a number five right beside it in square brackets. I don't know. What, <laughs> by the way, if you're to anyone who writes biographies if you're writing uh, do not paste in the number five or three or something beside because that's a sure indication you just lifted it off the wikipedia <laughs> always attempt to rewrite the wikipedia entry when you're in your in your uh, biography so, but I what know. that uh, what that tells me is that this adventurous spirit has lasted throughout his life and uh, what's the thinking going into you know wanting to uh, to work with snoop dogg for example but it's not that it's not that unusual though because when you know that Dr. Dre was the architect of Snoop and you realize that Dr. Dre is part of that tradition mm-hmm. of uh really ingenious black american uh engineer producers who create um a funky relevant sound of their time and then you you have someone like Stevie who goes you know he's living in the real world and he's listening to the same music like it's that year zero thing like these people are listening to the same record I mean why did McCartney work with Kanye West I mean well I have more suspicions about that one than <laughs> Snoop would have been very um, uh, uh, complimentary towards Stevie having grown up listening to his music right. and Stevie would have been plugged into what's happening in the charts right you know for the last for the entire time that he's been around. And so those things make a lot of sense, especially because Stevie's consciousness too. Like Snoop hasn't been, isn't known as a hundred percent consciousness guy, but he's definitely of, of his environment and speaks to his environment. So I, I could see that making a lot of sense that, right. that Snoop would be involved, but might, might be more interesting to, to think about. I'm not sure. Yeah. His output has kind of waned in the past 10, 15 years. Hasn't really put out an album since what, 2005 or something. Right. Um, I know he was uh, on the Larry King uh, interview. He was talking about, you know, an album in the works and who knows how long it's been in the works, but uh, is it important for Stevie to put out another album? Well, certainly, Certainly something I'm learning in this discussion about, you know, we mentioned McCartney and we mentioned Elvis Costello. And, you know, I, I think that what we're learning is make a record because they still have it. They still have the passion for it. Um, then I think that it's completely valid that someone like Stevie Wonder could take, you know, the, he's a wise man of song. He knows so many things. He has so much to offer. If he's got something to say, for instance, if he was to make a record informed by the Black Lives Matter struggle and write a song about, you know, um, uh, Breonna Taylor, mm-hmm. if he was to write a song about Breonna Taylor, even if it was poetically and not name checked her, um, then very issues that are also timeless, sadly, and and he knows how to pull it off. He could write the song, and he, of course, he could bring in uh, Thundercat to play on it. He could bring in whoever is also relevant to, to right now you know you could bring in uh, 
Brittany Howard. He, okay, so he could bring in Brittany Howard. Oh, right, of course. Right. He can do that because he's the he's the the the, the godlike figure of soul that could can just call anyone and they'll they'll show up in a minute the same way prince could could have done it uh i mean certainly a prince stevie wonder collaboration uh i think there might have been one but uh th- th- that's why it's still relevant that those people can make new records whether it's a great hit record or not the music business has kind of met a lot of these people halfway so yeah. elvis costello can make a great record for instance and in my mind be very relevant and, and in some ways the validity of all of these things is all the same now. Like, you know, if Paul McCartney was to make, or Stevie Wonder was to make a record right now that is just great, but it doesn't sell a gajillion records. Well, a lot of people aren't selling a gajillion records. Right. As long as we know it's great. Right. You know, and then I guess he would have to tour again. And that's a whole other problem with 2020, right? Yeah. But, but Stevie toured recently, uh, a few years ago, and I missed it. Like I couldn't afford the ticket because it was like a stadium show. And I, you know, I, I still haven't seen a Stevie Wonder concert. I'm in the same boat. I haven't seen Stevie play, and uh, it's uh, certainly a regret for sure. Many of these icons uh, seem to keep going because for them, m- music is life. You know, music is breath. Yes. And that, that it's not something that you can turn off. It just, you know, it keeps driving you until you're your last dying breath, right? Absolutely. Yeah. And that's, and that, that gets, speaks to what I was talking about is as long as you're still playing and you are, have a passion because the passion's everything, right? Right. Yeah. Right. Um, I just want to wrap up Stevie. Just uh, what will he be remembered for? What is his major contribution, not in terms of albums, but just in terms of sort of musical presence? He created a kind of almost genreless, um, certainly within the R and B spectrum, but it, he was just a master song crafter. Um, he, he, he has like a melodic and rhythmic gift that is both commercial and doesn't feel hampered by commercial demands. It, it feels like he made joyous, he put joyous music on record and he, he creates hummable melodies. He's orchestrated it all to sound like it's just normal. Um, and I think that that's, so that's the thing. he, I would look at him as a master, uh, both record maker, but also a master songwriter. Like mm. up there with like the people I speak of usually are like Joni Mitchell, Paul McCartney, uh, Neil Young, uh, an artist that you know, the minute you hear it, you know who that is. You know? yeah, indeed, indeed. We're almost out of time. I just wanted to end. You've been incredibly generous with your time, by the way, Paul. Thank you so much for this. This is, uh, it's really cool for well, me. It's and, almost so fun to talk about this. You know? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So we're going to play a little game I like to call Cool Not Cool. I'm going to throw out some names of artists, and you get to tell me in your estimation whether you think they're cool or not. And if you've got a little bit of uh, commentary to back that up, please feel free. Justin Bieber. Uh, It's so funny because I would say uncool, uh, but I also know that, you know, there's this whole poptimism strain of cool where people say that, you know, someone like him... You know, but he's not as cool as like Carly Rae Jepsen or, uh, right. you know, uh, you know what I mean? He's, so I would say uncool. Uh, that doesn't mean I don't think he's got talent. I actually think right. um, he was a great drummer on the street. I know that. Um, but um, yeah, I, I, he's got, definitely got a talent and certainly people like him. Right. But I don't, I don't, I don't know think he's cool. I don't think he's cool. I just, okay. I don't want to say, I don't like dissing people, but yeah, <laughs> I wouldn't say cool. I wouldn't say cool. Okay. Um, Todd Rundgren. I'd say cool. 
I mean, he can be the architect of his own demise at times, but <laughs> more cool than not. In fact, I just, you know, heard recently that, you know, like in the last few years, he, he, he'll work with uh, artists for the right reason. And in eight years ago, and, and you could tell it was because he knew, you know, or his work with Tame Impala. Like he, he knows, and he's like a big fan of people like Anderson Pack and, and stuff. Right. So he's, he's not, he's not, He's an older guy, and he's certainly in some ways set in his ways, but he's also, he was very quick to sort of discover drum and bass, and, and he loves getting back into his own synthesizer stuff. And so I'd say very cool. And he always seems to be pushing the boundaries. He's always trying something yeah. new, right? For himself, too. Having a party, and he's putting all these things together, and he's aware of when, you know, maybe he's out of step commercially, but he doesn't care. Kanye West. Okay, this is somebody who was cool. Right. I would say, I'd say uh, there was a period where Kanye was, you know, he was collaborating with John Bryan and different people like that. And he, he uh, made a lot of people's best of polls and he made a lot of music that was the, musically. I, I never really cared much about his lyrics as, as other people maybe, but I thought musically he was doing a lot of invention. And he, he seemed at some point to be kind of an heir of the, uh, to the approach to making, you know, tracks. Mm -hmm. Um, but in hindsight, he's become somewhat uncool. And certainly uh, his association with MAGA has uh, has eroded a lot of my trust in him. Yeah. Robert Fripp. Fripp. Oh, Fripp. Super cool. Yeah. Fripp is, uh, Fripp is one of those, speaking of an artist that you recognize when you hear him. So when he shows up on Heroes by David Bowie, um, I mean, that's that's Fripp right there. And just, or when he plays on uh, uh, other Bowie tracks where you can, like really feel like the sort of angular inventive soloing and yeah. you know when he reinvented the the reinvention of king crimson in 1980 with uh adrian ballou uh tony levin and uh bill bruford right um i mean just an amazing uh like that was a prog guy prog rock guy reacting to the talking heads and new york energy and creating this hybrid american english band taking one of the original king crimson drummers back Right. And then bringing two American musicians in, Levin and, and Baloo, giving like the spotlight on Baloo to sing his sort of David Burnish kind of approach. Uh, and that, that was just, you know, that. And then he did like the work with uh, Daryl Hall on Sacred Songs and Peter Gabriel's solo record and, yeah. um, and his own albums like Exposure. And then uh, also the... Uh, League of Gentlemen. Uh, right. I saw League of Gentlemen at the Elma Combo, by the way. I was oh, there. Oh, wow. Me and Michael Philip Voyavoda went to see that show. He's, uh, wow. It was like, just, uh, again, the reinterest. And like, he married Toya Wilcox, but they're crazy. <laughs> they do crazy YouTube videos. I love their posts. I absolutely love their posts. He's the, in on the, the joke. He, he knows he's the straight man, and he plays yeah. it really well. Yeah. <laughs> so he's, he's super cool. <laughs> Uh, he actually mentioned the name of my band on his show, which I thought was cool. I, I wrote in and asked a question, and that was that was very cool. Oh, that's so nice. Yeah. I love that. <laughs> um, Dan Mangan. Well, he's very cool. Unfortunately, I don't really know him um, much. Uh, I, I, I've, I've, I've run across his music on occasion. I really like what I've heard. Uh, I've seen him uh, or internet stream concerts. And he seems like a great guy. I, 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 uh, I'm giving away my uncoolness by not knowing enough about him right now. Yeah. Um, okay, two more. Uh, let's, uh, let's go to Henry Rollins. <laughs> Henry Rollins is ultimately cool. 
I don't know if I'd want to be on a bus with them. That's, but that's not necessarily, that's just based on what I've seen. I mean, I, I, the high E you mean? (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. Just, well, just that he strikes me as a thorny character. Mm. Um, but I think he's, when we talk about if part of being cool is being your own person, uh, he's definitely lived a life seemingly authentically to his own uh, core values. So that's cool. Yeah. He does seem like the real deal. I don't know how he treats people. I don't know anything about that. So I, I will say that he seems cool. Yeah. Uh, finally, Lou Reed. Well, Lou Reed is kind of the king of cool. I mean, yeah. and he, it, again, also maybe you don't necessarily imagine is really unpleasant or was unpleasant. Mm-hmm. But um, at the end of the day, I mean, Kevin Hearn is a friend of mine who from Bare Naked Ladies and mm-hmm. Look People and stuff. And he ended up playing a lot of the later period Lou Reed uh, touring bands and stuff. And he... He spoke of Lou as the most spiritually seeking uh, Zen master, you know, certainly at that age when he knew him, when, when Kevin knew Lou, it was later. Mm-hmm. And Tony, Tony Visconti, who is also one of his friends, was in a, a, a Tai Chi group with him or something. Or, right. You know, I once was walking through Greenwich Village and I was walking past a sidewalk cafe and I looked down and saw a dog under a table and, you know, it was an outdoor cafe and I looked up and it was Lou Reed and Laurie Anderson having wow maybe maybe brunch oh and my. i and i did that thing that you do with some celebrities where you go uh uh and you look at them and then you think oh i don't have to say anything they know right they, yeah and if i was to interrupt them now i'm an asshole so right when i went like like one of those fingers to the head salutes like yeah you know, like i see you yeah and i kept going and i thought i want to be the guy that they remembered has as not bothering them that day Right, but uh, but it, Lou's cool. I mean, Lou's yeah. super cool, as is Laurie. You know, yeah. but um, and again, there's a nation of cool right there. Yeah, yeah Lou sure. is cool, and he represents cool too. I mean, he's a guy who could do an ad for a Honda scooter and make make it seem like doing ads was cool. You yeah, know, that's right. <laughs> you know, and, I mean, that's that's important. And you know, and uh, as much as we all talk about the Velvet Underground and all the Berlin, but but I gotta say, his New York album when he released New York, and he had like Dirty Boulevard, and yeah. Oh my God. And, you know, and then, oh, songs for Drella. Like, yeah. this is a guy who also had a reverence for 1950s doo wop music mm. and the Brill Building and, and, you know, but Delmore Schwartz as well, and as well as Doc Pomus. And, and he knew everything about that stuff. And, you know, he, you know, he knew, he probably knew Andy Warhol was full of shit sometimes, but he loved him, you know, and he loved right. being part of that world. He was a guy from a, the, the sort of, uh, Paris in the 1920s, but it's New York in the 60s and 70s, you know? Yeah, yeah. And no wonder we still think he's cool. And just also his singing, again, talk about that thing about if cool, if part of being cool is that you don't walk to the audience, you have them walk to you. He says, I'm just going to talk most of my songs. Yeah. I'm just going to talk most of my songs. <laughs> like, you take, know. take No Prisoners, the live album, I thought it was half a comedy album. <laughs> oh, yeah. Like when he says, give me an issue, I'll give you a tissue. That's right. You know, like. <laughs> I'll wipe my ass with it. Yes, there you go. Yeah. Yeah, and then he, was, he also says, like, fuck hard, little people. Like, or like you know, like, right. like, yeah, I mean, and when, you know, when I'm a kid hearing that, like I was a teenager, yeah. I think, hearing yeah. that, I was like, I don't know what a Lou Reed is, but it certainly seems cool to me. Thank you so much for spending the time and uh, what a wonderful and interesting conversation. Um, it's been a real joy. Oh, thank you. I really appreciate, I appreciate you having me. And it's, it's really fun to just talk about stuff. And uh, like, again, thanks for not being upset that I didn't have like notes with me. Cause I, <laughs> it's all, I'm pointing, you can't see this at home, but I'm pointing to my head and it's all in here. And, um, and there's a lot of stuff going on in there. So, yeah. um, so, but yeah, no, it's fun to talk about things.
cool isn't the only thing in the world. And, and as Elvis Costello says, be of good heart, you know, being of good heart and having good intentions and being kind to me, those are the coolest things you can be. And kind doesn't mean weak. It just means that you're, you're leading with uh, positivity and helpfulness. You know, those, those are values that I think are cool. Here, here. Well said. Thank you so much, Paul. Many thanks to Paul for a fascinating conversation and apologies for our connection issues. Look for his Record Store Day podcast and keep an eye out for his book on John Candy, which hopefully will be out late 2021 or early 2022. I'm Bernard Fraser saying please support independent artists and stay safe.